So if you have your Bibles, could you open them to Matthew 18? Uh, we're going to, to read our text for this morning. I'll give you a minute to turn there or to scroll there. This is the reason why we're here, by the way. It's not to hear me speak, God forbid. It's for us to get into God's word. So we're all on the same level here, okay? We're all presenting ourselves to God's word and letting it read us. So let's look here. Matthew 18, we're gonna start in verse 15. Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Now here's where we'll focus. Verse 21, then Peter came up, this is immediately after that, and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Let's pray. God, we 
we do want to be read by your word. We do want to hear what you have to say to us. So, Lord, give us ears to hear. And then, Lord, give us uh, the power. Send your spirit now to give us the power to do what you ask us to do this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, it's been over 20 years ago now, and I'm not sure if there was any blood, but I had definitely been hit. I was at a small group leaders conference in Gaithersburg, Maryland, and the first session had just ended. I found myself at a Perkins restaurant at 11 p.m., and for some reason I was there with some conference, the, the actual conference leaders, I remember sitting down, ordering my scrambled eggs, well done, crispy bacon, white toast, no home fries, because they're disgusting, <laughs> and black coffee. And so I didn't really know what was going on. I really wasn't paying attention because I remember the bacon was particularly wonderful that time. So I was just in my own head. But through my bacon stupor, I began to realize that the worship leader was going around the table asking everyone, what did you think of the conference so far? What were your impressions? So he turned to me and he said, Brandon, you're a music guy. What did you think of the worship? Hmm. What did I think of the worship? So I was raised in a Christian home and the church that we went to uh, didn't have drums. And let's just say, if you were raising your hand, you better be asking a question. <laughs> and we're not taking any questions at this time. So, yeah, I had some thoughts. I had some impressions. So I don't remember exactly what I said. Uh, it's embarrassing. But I do remember, this is my bacon. I was, like, using my bacon as some, like, <laughs> pointer, some college professor dressing down a freshman or something. And I was, it was something like, how do you justify leading people in such an emotionally driven blah, 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 vomit, vomit, vomit. I'm, I can imagine everybody at the table just like backing away. I got to get away from this unfolding train wreck. So as I'm finishing up illustrating how much of a moron I am, his face had this growing look of sadness <laughs> and pity, which was super annoying. Uh, you know, when you're trying to like impress somebody and correct them, them looking at you in pity is maddening. So when I finally finished, he paused for just a moment, and I'll never forget this the rest of my life. He just said, Brandon, I'm so sorry that you missed an opportunity to worship God. And then he turned and asked somebody else what they thought of the conference. <laughs> and I'm, I'm like, am I bleeding? Do I have blood on me? Because I didn't even finish my bacon. I mean, it was, I mean, it was awesome. And not then, it was horrific then. And even now, to be honest, it still hurts a little. It's, <laughs> it stings. But... Um, yeah, so after the conference ended, I emailed him and I said, I hope you don't remember me, but what was 
obviously clear to you is becoming clearer to me that I don't know anything. <laughs> Please help me. And so now I go to a church with drums and there were a lot of questions during worship this morning. So um, there you go. I guess we're growing. But the reason why I share this wonderfully embarrassing story with you is because it illustrates how easy it is for all of us to confidently and dramatically miss the point. We wax eloquent only to have our world tilt with just a few words from Jesus. And in just a few words, Jesus takes Peter's perhaps ill-motivated question about forgiveness and brings us all to a sober reflection on our own experience and the dire consequences of an unforgiving heart. So why must a disciple forgive? Notice I said, why should not a disciple forgive? Why must a disciple forgive? The answer is because we've been forgiven. Look at how Jesus lays out for us this beautiful picture of the gospel. He tells our story. If you're a follower of Jesus, he tells your story. Look in verses 23 to 27. It says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle his accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Get this. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Now, if you notice in verses 23 and 24, the gospel, when we say the God, we use that word a lot, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. The gospel begins with the justice of God demanding justice. That's where it starts. Now, the concept of a king is a little foreign to us as Americans. We won the war, after all. But I think we have read enough books, watched enough movies to get the idea. A king is the supreme authority. He makes the rules, he enforces the rules. He owns the kingdom and he controls the kingdom. He grants life and he can demand death. You just hope that he's a good king. Now this king wished to settle accounts with his servants. That alone makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> Even if my accounts are in order, I, I don't like being around someone with that much power. Okay? Let's be honest, though. My account isn't in order. Our accounts aren't in order. The servant in this story, he's in trouble. The story of forgiveness always begins with a debt owed, and the justice of God demands that debt be paid. So can we talk about this debt for a second? None of us are getting paid um, by way of talent. So one talent is 20 years worth of labor. One talent, 20 years. If it's helpful to think in days, 
6,000 days of labor. He owed how many talents? 10,000 talents. You math nerds are already doing it. <laughs> carry the one. 200,000 years worth of labor. Or days, 60 million days worth of labor, if that's easier for your brain to get around. Now, I gave him 13 million days off. It's really <laughs> 73 million days. I don't know what the 401k project of, you know. Anyway, okay, so let's just think 60 million days. So can we agree that this is not a, some case of racking up $1,000 on your credit card, okay? Uh, it's not like you go home and it's like, okay, we gotta tighten up the ship here, you know, and we can get this paid off so Dave Ramsey doesn't come in here and make me sell my car. <laughs> no, there's no debt snowball method for 200,000 years <laughs> worth of debt, okay? There's no way out. Listen to this, he simply can't live long enough to pay off his debt. Jesus is painting a picture of total desperation, utter poverty, and hopelessness. So in the knowledge of what he owes, the servant stands before his master to settle his account. Can we just take a moment to appreciate what's going on in this story so far? Place yourself in his shoes, knowing what you know. Okay, I'm standing before you. Don't skip ahead. I think as Christians growing up in the church, we skip ahead a lot. We, are, we already know, oh yeah, Jesus died on the cross, we're good. Yeah, we'll get there, but before that, we're unable to pay our debt. So what happens? The master orders that he be sold into a life of slavery and his wife and his children and probably generations of his children's children in order that the master can recoup some of what he's lost because of this guy. So what does he do? What do we do? Mercy. We cry out for mercy. Please don't give me what I deserve. He cries out for mercy. He falls to his knees and he says, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. That's crazy. <laughs> but it's genuine. The next scene of this story is simply remarkable. I mean, look at verse 27. 27. It says, and out of pity for him, so the master owns everything, controls everything, has pity, feels sorry for this situation that this guy did to himself. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. <clears throat> so I just want to say a couple of things here. Because he's the king, he has the choice to either demand the servant pay the price 
or he can absorb the cost of that debt himself as the king. 200,000 years worth of labor must be paid. Who's going to pay it? Will it be paid by the servant or will the cost be absorbed by the king himself? In this story, he chose to pay that price himself. How did our king choose? This is how the apostle John answers. In this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the wrath-absorbing sacrifice, the debt-fulfilling payment for our sins. He goes on. We sang about it this morning. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He was given to provide eternal payment for our eternal debt. That whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. It's amazing. The Apostle Paul answers this way, but God shows his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, while we still had an unpayable debt to pay, Christ died for us. And you're familiar with the prophet Isaiah in 53 says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment, the debt, that brought us peace. That was put on him. With his stripes, we're healed. In mercy, God does not give us what we deserve. In grace, God gives us what we don't deserve. Let me say that again. In mercy, God does not give us what we deserve. Punishment, separation from him, holy wrath. In grace, God gives us what we don't deserve. Forgiveness, restored relationship with him, and a saving love. So why must a disciple forgive? We've been forgiven. So remember, let's not get lost in the wonderful weeds here. Remember, this, this parable is Jesus' response to the question, how often can my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Seven times, which is a lot if you think about it. And Jesus answers 70 times seven, or some translations 77 times. So up to this point in this parable, do you see what Jesus is doing? He's rooting the entire idea of forgiveness in the soil of the experience of our forgiveness from God. Jesus is helping us to see the whole context of forgiving someone else comes out of our own experience of forgiveness from God. And then everything comes off the rails. <laughs> I mean, wow, plot twist. If you keep reading... It's almost as if Jesus knows, okay, we'll get to this point in the story. Our hearts will be warmed. We've experienced the lows, the highs, the emotions, the tension, the release. And get up from here and go about the rest of our day and promptly refuse to forgive someone. 
He knows us. He knows we're going to miss the point. So he provides for us this absurd contrast, which sadly for some of us is a little more familiar than absurd. Now, as we explore this second section, we're all confronted with another answer to why must a disciple forgive? The first answer was, we've been forgiven, right? The second answer Jesus provides is shocking. Because a disciple who does not forgive is really not a, a disciple. This is an incredibly sobering section of Scripture. Let's read it together again, 28 through 35. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a 100 denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Notice how pity has now turned to anger. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. And you know how sometimes when Jesus does a teaching, then the disciples are like, hey, good one, what? Can you explain that? He doesn't do that here, which to me makes it feel even more stark. It's just, now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea. It was like dead silence. And they're all left Okay, what, what does that mean? We have to allow ourselves to be sobered. We hate being sobered. We're running after the tinkling, shining lights, escape discomfort. This is uncomfortable. I find it hard work to think seriously about these things. Too often, I move on from uncomfortable passages and work hard to find a way out. Like, oh, yeah, but there's another scripture that you know, kind of softens that a little bit. And, but in doing so, I think we're missing what God is leaning in to impress on us this morning. God is leaning in this morning to help us. He's given us this passage right here to help us live out a genuine life of discipleship. So in verses 28 through 33, Jesus sets up a series of jaw-dropping disconnects and contrasts. The first one is you've got the master-to-servant relationship versus the servant-to-servant relationship. 
So if we look at that, the master-to-servant relationship, the master rules, he owns, he governs all without question, independent of the servant. And then, of course, you've got the servant-to-servant relationship. They're equal. I don't own you. I, you know, you owe me 100 denarii, but that doesn't make me your master. They're the same. They have no rule over one another. And here's the disconnect that Jesus is trying to bring out. The servant is granted forgiveness by one who is his master and yet seeks to assert ownership over one who is his equal. When someone sins against me, do I view myself as a sovereign king who has been sinned against? Or do I see myself as the same? Just as humility is required in our own experience of forgiveness, humility is required in our forgiveness of someone else. We're the same. So let's go on to the second one. And I, I think this one is really is, is the one that God uses with me a lot. So the 10,000 talents versus 100 denarii. Now remember, Jesus' whole point with these is to set up this, these absurd distinctions to drive home the point. This should not be, okay? So 10,000 talents versus 100 denarii. One denarius is one day's worth of labor. One denarius is one day's worth of labor. You work eight hours, 10, 16 hours, or whatever. Whatever you get paid one day, a hundred of those is what this guy owed his friend. So this is not an insignificant amount of money, right? Even if you're getting paid minimum wage, which is now like a lot, you still, that's, that's a lot of money. It's over three months worth worth of income. So it wasn't like this guy had five bucks. You know, that would be truly absurd and unbelievable. So Jesus makes it to where it's like, oh, well, 100 denarii, that's a lot. I mean, so was 200,000 years, but this is, this is also a lot. However, we're comparing 100 days worth of labor to roughly 60 million days worth of labor. So if we're doing comparisons, it's not even a rounding error. That probably triggered a lot of accountants out there. And they're like, oh, yes, it is. So I love that Jesus put it in here this way. Because at this point, I want to recognize that there are many in this room that we're surrounded by who have endured unspeakable acts of sin perpetrated against them. So I want you to see and I want you to feel that Jesus in no way is minimizing the pain and the cost of that sin. It's not like Jesus is saying, You've been forgiven 200,000 years worth of labor. Get over it. That is not what he's saying. So hear that. Forgiveness 
always costs something. It always costs something. To forgive is to pay the price yourself. And it's so hard when you've already paid the price of the sin itself. God has already paid the price of his creatures sinning against him. And then above and beyond that, he sends his son. The gift of forgiveness we have received from God cost him the life and suffering of his only begotten son. And so this is what I believe the message of this whole passage is. Since you've been forgiven a debt you could never pay, you are now empowered to forgive those who have sinned against you, whatever or whoever they may be. That power is yours because God has already forgiven something far greater. We feel trapped when we have someone we don't want to forgive. God is saying, I want to release you to forgive. The third disconnect is a merciful response of the master versus unmerciful response of the servant. Now, the approach used in each situation is completely different, right? We look at verse 23, and the king is just settling accounts. It doesn't feel personal, but it is personal because he's the king. But it, it almost seems like a business transaction. Well, what do you owe? I owe this. Well, okay, well, then pay up. Okay. This guy goes out, finds his buddy, and starts choking him. So it, it feels different. The pleas for mercy, notice they're almost verbatim. Have mercy on me and I will pay you what I owe. And the responses couldn't be any far different. The first servant had seemingly just walked out of the most significant moment in his life and immediately goes and does the exact opposite. The point Jesus is driving home here is our willingness to forgive is directly proportional to our understanding of and appreciation of our own forgiveness. Our willingness to forgive is connected to and fueled by our understanding and appreciation of our own forgiveness. I have to confess that my heart is often cold and hard toward others. I wish it weren't that way, but it is. It's only after significant time and help from friends meditating on God's love for me that softens my heart toward others. So let me ask you, this is where it goes from preaching to meddling. Is there someone you've been thinking about during this sermon? Are you finding it hard to forgive them? Or, let me put it this way, you refuse to forgive them. Jesus helps us in this parable. He says, okay, I understand where you are. Start with your own forgiveness and then walk out from there.
you feel trapped, you feel like, I could never forgive them. Jesus says, we'll get to that. Start with what you've experienced. The natural outflow of that will be forgiveness of others. That's what he's saying. Not in a moment. It may take time. Can I just say one more thing? You might be giving yourself an out this morning because you say, well, I'm not going around choking people. I think we can agree that's good. Good job, you know. Well done. Um, but it, isn't it more often that we're not choking people, it's like a dirty look. Or, you know, we're holding, we're gonna, we're, I'm just going to hold on to that one. You know, I, I think it's crazy how we can turn even the smallest thing into a full-blown relational conflict. We have that capacity. So I, I think many of us in this room would, would never choke anyone. But we murder them in our hearts over and over. We keep grudges. We keep lists of wrongdoings, sometimes literal lists of wrongdoings. We wait for them to offend us in the same way so that we feel justified for not forgiving them because they haven't changed. We're no better than this unforgiving servant, this ludicrous outsized picture of someone. That's us. We've sadly missed the point. So moving on, moving on to this fourth conflict and dis or contrast and disconnect. Freedom of forgiveness versus the bondage of unforgiveness. In verse 27, he's released. Out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. It's amazing. But then you roll over to verse 30, and it says, The servant refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. So again, the first servant had just been spared the dissolution of his family, a life of misery, yet this seems to have no effect on him as he goes and he throws his fellow servant into prison. This reminded me of a St. Augustine quote. Uh, you, I'm sure you've heard it. Resentment is like taking poison and waiting for the other person to die. When we do not forgive others, we're actually enslaving ourselves. Have you felt the effects of not forgiving someone? There's a lot of knowing faces out here this morning. It's like, yes. It's terrible. And you think you're punishing them, but in, you're miserable. It's like you're paper cutting yourself to death. You're just slowly bleeding out. A refusal to forgive can leave a church in sinful bondage. So instead of a place of freedom, it can become a place of empty religion. The Apostle Paul was no stranger to suffering and being sinned against. 
Listen to what he wrote the church at Ephesus. He says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And Peter, too, in his letter writes, above all, this is it, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Peter's talking about forgiveness motivated by love. It seems Peter eventually got the point. So may God keep the disease of unforgiveness from spreading in our hearts and spreading in this church. Let's be quick to forgive so that it doesn't grow like a cancer here at Brandywine Grace. Listen, I, I often recognize these four disconnects in my own life. If God is revealing something to you about you this morning, I encourage you to do what I have to do too often. I have to humble myself and admit I'm wrong. I hate that. I hate being wrong. I need forgiveness for my unforgiving heart. Ask God for forgiveness and then forgive those who have sinned against you. Because you may even have to forgive them 77 times. So Jesus ends this parable with just a terrifying statement. He challenges us to compare who we think we are with who we actually are. Are we those who forgive as we've been forgiven? Or are we those who claim to be forgiven and refuse to forgive others? This is the whole point of this parable. This is the answer to Peter's question. We have been forgiven and we are to forgive. So I'm gonna have the band come up and as they're coming up, I'd like us to read those final verses again. In verse 31, it says, when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is a powerful story. And it contains powerful, life-altering truths. May God give us grace to see our own need for forgiveness. And may God give us grace to extend mercy and forgiveness to those who sin against us. Amen.